0: Certainly, you can't necessarily generalize rodent research into humans, and I pointed that out. But I think it, there are several things. Number one, it gives the um, it provides the ability for hypothesis generation, and also it, it can show the extent to which something can, or it can be a proof of principle to show that something will occur and to what extent or under a given condition. But you know, you're not going to be able. To, you, a rat is not going to be able to curl dumbbells to failure, or when asked, or stop right. it at other repetitions in reserve. So there's going to be a lot of limitations, and that's why generally rodent research is a precursor to doing human research, often is, because you can draw hypotheses, like I say, and, and also if we didn't have the, let's say if we were just doing the research in humans, you might say that, um, that hyperplasia would never occur. And it's important to know that it potentially could occur. And then under those, condi- then you can maybe start to figure out under what conditions and maybe there would be applications in some way to human, uh, to, to uh, practical, the practical implications in human uh, research. What does motion sound like? With Kisikans Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this experience the magic
1: of motion get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal it probably won't go well So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to keepitfunohio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 103. And this episode is with Brad Schoenfeld, who is Professor of Exercise Science in the Department of Health Promotion and Nutrition Sciences at Lehman College in the Bronx, New York, where he also serves as the Graduate Director of the Human Performance and Fitness Program. And Brad is one of, if not the foremost, uh, authorities on human muscular development and author of the textbook science and development of muscle hypertrophy which i first read a few years ago i think the first edition came out in 2016 but if you've been listening to this podcast for uh, a significant period of time or even just a few months you've probably discovered that i have a very wide array of interests and one is exercise science and weightlifting. And so I've re- read all sorts of textbooks, I've done all sorts of certifications and all of this stuff and a few podcast episodes at this point as well on strength training on exercise science and this is a great one. So in this episode Brad and I talk <clears throat> a lot about the content of this textbook. So we talk about some of the foundations of hypertrophy and more questionably hyperplasia, but hypertrophy hypertrophy is muscle growth. Hyperplasia is the the splitting of muscle fibers. And we talk about this on a theoretical level. So what makes muscles grow and what it looks like. And for this reason, this is a more technical episode than many. That sounds kind of funny, given that so many of these episodes have been on the foundations and philosophy of mathematics. But I mean, it's technical in the sense that we talk a lot about the science and the research, but then the second half of the episode is much more practical. So we talk about some of the applications of the theoretical material that we talk about in the gym in order to increase your muscle growth. And, I think people have a very distorted understanding of going to the gym and growing muscles in general, in the sense that maybe this is more common among women, but I think a lot of men have this delusion as well. But I think that if they just start going to the gym, they are going to become Arnold Schwarzenegger overnight. But that is not at all what happens. It is extraordinarily difficult to put on significant muscle mass, especially if you're not on performance-enhancing drugs. So I am not on performance-enhancing drugs, and I'm not particularly uh, big either. I mean, if you go to my Instagram, you'll see some shirtless videos of me doing fitness stuff, but I'm not that big. And it's quite possible that I I can't really get much bigger. My muscles can't get much bigger without drugs, which I'm not going to take. But beyond this, this idea that you're not just going to blow up from going to the gym, it's very difficult to put on muscle. The other important misconception that I wanted to bring out right away is this idea that you become super bulky from lifting weights, especially this is an especially prevalent belief, I think among women. But when people say that they want to be toned, the what they really mean, I think, is they would like to put on a reasonable amount of muscle mass and then lose fat. And this reasonable amount of muscle mass is still very difficult to come by so all of these applications that we talk about in this podcast are extremely relevant even if you don't see yourself or want to see yourself becoming arnold schwarzenegger they would be just as helpful i think to a victoria's secret model who certainly doesn't want to look like arnold schwarzenegger as they would be to somebody who does so there are a few links in the description let me just pull this up one naturally is to brad's textbook science and development of muscle hypertrophy then brad's twitter he's on twitter at brad schoenfeld and if you're at all into the iron game then you will certainly know that he's on instagram at brad schoenfeld phd so likes subscribes these sorts of things are always endlessly appreciated if you are into food i have this channel on twitch and youtube robinson eats where i eat a pint of ice cream every morning at least in part to fuel these gym gains that i'm not really getting anymore and well it it goes both ways i also get to eat the ice cream because of going to the gym and then i think that's it so without any further ado i hope you enjoy this conversation oh actually there's one other thing i have a discord there there is a discord for robinson's podcast that you can find at RobinsonAirhart.com. but if you ever want to leave uh comments or ideas about guests this sort of thing you can go there so now returning to my outro without any further ado i hope you enjoy this conversation as much as i enjoyed having it with brad <laughs> To begin, I'd like to just go through some of the general theory and tenets of hypertrophy that can be found in your textbook, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. So I read the first edition a few years ago, and as you know, I mean, you wrote it. It's an absolutely terrific resource, and I'm curious about things have how, have, how things have developed in um, the intervening time. But first, I think we should start with some of the absolute basics, because most people outside of the... Hardcore strength training and exercise science world probably won't be familiar with the term hypertrophy, let alone contractile and sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. So, what are these two dimensions of hypertrophy, and how do they relate to the the much more elusive, at least in practice, uh, notion of hyperplasia?
0: Yeah, sure. There's a lot to unpack there, but the hypertrophy is the growth of it's growth of tissue. Uh, And specifically, muscle skeletal hypertrophy is growth of muscle, skeletal muscle. Um, Generally speaking, there are two ways that muscles uh, can hypertrophy. They can hypertrophy in parallel, which is kind of like adding, um, and this is adding what are called sarcomeres, uh, which are the smallest functional unit of a a muscle. And when you add sarcomeres, the muscle grows. Um, You can add them in parallel which is kind of like sardines in a can where they're uh, next to each other, where the sarcomeres are added next to each other, or they can be added in series, which is like links in a chain. Um, for the most part, in parallel, hypertrophy is the primary way that muscles uh, grow, particularly over long periods of time. There are certain, There's some evidence that in the short term, like early phases of a resistance training program, you can have in series hypertrophy, some other uh, evidence, which is still I think somewhat controversial, that certain types of training programs, even at an, at an advanced level, can cause in in-series hypertrophy. But the primary way by most uh, by most evidence that we have now is through in parallel hypertrophy. Hyperplasia is where muscles divide or mu- where f- uh, muscle cells, fibers divide and become more, Fibers, so one fiber can make two, two can make four, et cetera, et cetera. Um, There's limited evidence that that can occur. Um, There's some avian evidence, bird in bird models that have been uh, shown, but they use really extreme protocols as well as some rodent models uh, where they, I mean, do things like they cut off a certain muscle, like the gastric nemius, and then you can see huge increases in muscle uh, development. With the birds, they tape, they put the wing in a stretch, and they look at the latissimus dorsi, and they do this for days on end with little um, little weights hanging off their wings that are, I mean, up to thirty percent of the bird's weight. So just really extreme protocols that obviously humans would never go through, Mm -hmm. and they've shown pretty extreme hyperplasia from that. But the the working model that we have now is that when muscles reach a certain point, they can no longer functionally grow anymore, and at that point, they can hypertrophy. thing is, it doesn't seem that in traditional type of training programs under traditional conditions, which I'll get to in a minute, um, that really happens to any large extent in humans. Where it does seem to at least be possible, if not likely to occur, is uh, when people take anabolic hormones, So when they're taking uh, pharmacological aids, which cause their growth to be really extreme beyond which you can achieve naturally, and at that point, conceivably, you would reach a point where the muscles would have to divide to continue to be functionally solvent.
1: So you mentioned the contractile hypertrophy. So that's when you add sarcomeres in series or in parallel, and you said that that's the The primary way in which humans experience hypertrophy. How does sarcoplasmic hypertrophy uh, factor into human hypertrophy?
0: So, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is uh, the hypertrophy of non contractile elements. So, there are basic, the contraction of a muscle, which is the functional way a muscle um, shortens and lengthens, is Predicated on various contractile proteins, such as actin, myosin, titin is is one that's come into play. Um, There are other proteins within uh, within fibers. Um, Mitochondria are within contained within muscle fibers. Uh, There are T tubules. There there are various other proteins that are involved. And it should be noted that protein. So the muscle likes to maintain or seeks to maintain a certain ratio of fluid to proteins. And this is a way that conceivably a muscle can not only add these non non contractile proteins, but it also would draw uh, conceivably additional fluid into the cell, water into the cell, to support the uh, functional validity of the uh, muscle fiber. And um, it's somewhat controversial to the, if it occurs, and I think emerging evidence that it certainly does occur. Um, when I say it does occur, does it occur? Certainly it occurs, but does it occur over and above uh, contractile, um, what you'd see in the, with contractile elements? Uh, so, we, of course, you're going to get um, non-contractile hypertrophy, and you can do that through aerobic training. It can cause um, sarcoplasmic growth. But the question is, can you see it? Um, over and above where specifically it would happen at a substantially greater rate than you would see with um, the contractile hypertrophy? And even more importantly, is there a particular type of training approach that might lend itself to that? And I think there is some emerging evidence that shows that may be the case. Um, I'm certainly not willing to Stake my reputation on that at this uh-huh. point. I think that we still have a long way to go to really understand it better. But there is, again, some emerging evidence that does seem to show that um, training in a higher volume with a lighter load, uh, lighter loads, can to some extent shift the processes towards greater sarcoplasmic growth. Uh, and, and I do want to met, uh, point out, though, that doesn't mean when you do that you don't get contractile growth so this is you get contractile growth but you will get conceivably um sarcoplasmic growth over and above where which you would from let's say heavier load training mm-hmm. that's kind of the working theory now i would say the theory is still somewhat weak to modest certainly we don't have strong evidence that that does occur and and to the extent and how and really these are things that um We'd like to think that we're in a very advanced age of research where we know all these things and we're still, in my opinion, in our infancy of really uncovering a lot of these um, explorations.
1: Hmm. Well, b- before we uh, return to this main thread of hypertrophy in humans and get to some applications of it, you mentioned the avian and rodent research on hyperplasia Uh, and i i especially find that the study with the weighted wings um, very fascinating but i have a more general methodological or theoretical question here Uh and what i'm wondering is how this sort of research on animals so not humans um how it informs your work on human subjects, and how how it how you go from this research in animals to perhaps making recommendations for training in humans.
0: Well, certainly you can't necessarily generalize rodent research into humans, and I pointed that out. But I think it there are several things. Number one, it gives the um, it provides the ability for hypothesis generation, and also it. it can show the extent to which something, could, or it can be a proof of principle, to show that something will occur and to what extent or under a given condition. But you know, you're not going to be able. To, a rat is not going to be able to curl dumbbells to failure, or when asked, or stop right. it at other repetitions in reserve. So there's going to be a lot of limitations, and that's why generally rodent research is a precursor to doing human research. Often is. Because you can draw hypotheses like I say, and, and also, if we didn't have the, let's say if we were just doing the research in humans, you might say that um, that hyperplasia would never occur. And it's important to know that it potentially could occur. And then under those, then you can maybe start to figure out under what conditions and maybe there would be applications in some way to human uh, to, to practical the practical implications in human. Uh, research. But without knowing that it's possible, you would never really draw that conclusion. So I think the a- animal research can be quite important, but is mm-hmm. certainly very limited and or has a lot of limitations in what can be extrapolated.
1: Mm-hmm. And then one last general question I have about the theory involves satellite cells, because I think that they're going to be they're very important for applicability even though you might not ever talk about them in the gym. But even though I think it's somewhat up in the air, just what are satellite cells? And can you sketch how they function in the muscle and in hypertrophy in particular?
0: Yeah. I don't really think we could say it's up in the air. I think the evidence that was quite compelling that satellite okay. cells have very important roles in muscle hypertrophy. Um, from my um, my review of the literature, I, I don't think we can... I would have a hard time saying that can be questioned. Now, to the extent that it does, I think obviously there's still more to be explored there, but okay. satellite cells are very important to hypertrophy uh, by really the body of research that we have. And satellite cells are uh, muscle stem cells. Most people know what stem cells are. Um, they remain quiescent, so they're not active until they are... Uh, until the muscle either undergoes contraction and or muscle damage. Those are the two primary uh, ways that have been shown to activate satellite cells. Once activated, satellite cells can proliferate, meaning they can replicate themselves and make more satellite cells. So ultimately, you can have almost a never-ending pool of satellite cells. They don't just go away once you use them. Uh, Mm -hmm. They they self-replicate. And they also can differentiate, which means they can become more specialized. And um, one of the primary things that, and certainly up until recently, they thought this was the primary thing that satellite cells do, is that they um, donate their nuclei to uh, the muscle fibers to transcribe more proteins. So nuclei are kind of the brains; it's the roughly called the brains of the uh, of the cell. Muscles have multiple nuclei so that they can facilitate hypertrophy. And um, if we're, we have a certain amount of nuclei. If we only if we stayed with that amount of nuclei, we'd have a, a limited ability to produce more muscle proteins. By adding on more, um, more nuclei as you go along, as you become more and more well-trained, the muscle can support a larger muscle. So let's say you maintain the nuclei that you had before you started training, you would have a certain capacity for growth. And think of it like a power plant. If you want to produce a certain number of nuclei or, or, or pro, let's say muscle proteins, uh, which would be uh, that that would be the example from the nuclei. Let's say you wanted to produce in a plant proteins, you'd have a limited number. If you have a let's say three plants, you'd have a capacity to produce a certain number of proteins from those plants. If you then had, you tapped out production, you'd want to produce more proteins. You'd have to add on more plants. Well, similarly, the muscle's uh, capacity to produce proteins is limited by the nuclei and thus satellite cells, by donating their nuclei, can facilitate greater transcriptional processes, which lead to greater translation of proteins and thus greater protein synthesis, which ultimately drives muscle growth. Um, And if I'm getting too Esoteric here to um...
1: you're not okay not at all.
0: Um, but but I will say too, some interesting emerging research also shows that uh, satellite cells have other roles too. They communicate uh, with uh, the cells and are involved in various intracellular processes that also seem to be regulators of growth. So uh, we're, that's I think an area that still is evolving, and we need more research.
1: Yeah, you're you're not getting too esoteric at all. We can get as esoteric as you'd like, and it is this esoteric aspect of protein transcription that I was getting at. Uh, this is a bit. This is a personal question about something I'm I'm going through right now. But I injured my shoulder late last year, and it's prevented my doing a lot of work on my chest, which has atrophied since then. and But because I've already experienced hypertrophy in the past, there's presumably been a lot of satellite cell activity there and bonding to the muscle fibers of my pectoral muscles, which are now significantly more nucleated than they would have been otherwise. And I'm wondering if, and this generalizes to other people who have experienced injuries, do you have any reason to believe that this will help me regain my lost muscle mass more quickly once I'm able to target my chest again because of the increased capacity to transcribe protein and then translate protein and then synthesize protein?
0: So That's a very uh, controversial topic in the field. Uh, some evidence does indicate that uh, you retain the nuclei uh, once you gain them. Um, other research refute or disputes that uh, those findings. So um, we're not really sure. Um, and that's the concept of muscle memory. Uh, there's a couple. Of so muscle memory also has to do with the coordination processes. That let's say you start lifting weights, you can bypass. The initial phases uh-huh. where your muscles are getting used to how to move, how to uh, carry out movement, and that, where generally speaking, the early phases of resistance training, you get more strength gains because of this coordination. You so see, your body learns to uh, create a more smooth and efficient movement pattern. But there also is the theory that the increased um, nuclei from satellite cell donation uh, contributes to greater or more rapid hypertrophy. Um, I can't tell you with any confidence based on the research that I've seen one way or the other, but I will say that some evidence does indicate that that is the case. And if you were to put a gun to my head, I would say probably it lies somewhere in between that's you retain some of it and might not retain all of it.
1: Got it. Okay. Well, now onto the meat of things. And I'm not sure if this is how you refer to it, but you are well known for arguing for and defending what I'll refer to as a tripartite uh, model of muscle hypertrophy in that there are three primary factors that contribute to muscle growth, mechanical tension, uh, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. And can we go through these one by one, just explaining the ideas before we go into some of the applications of each for actual training?
0: Yeah, and I'll start by saying I don't necessarily argue for that. I, um, oh, okay. my, and I ho- hopefully in, in my book I, uh, that co- maybe it didn't come across, but certainly that uh, my papers and, and my talks I certainly uh, discuss that we still are far away from knowing what the uh, what the mechanisms are. So I think it's clear that mechanical tension or mechanical stress is the primary. Uh, driver of hypertrophy. I don't think that's disputable. Um, And that uh, means that the body um, takes mechanical force. When when the body is um, imposed or or when a uh, mechanical force is imposed on the muscles on the body, those mechanical forces are converted into chemical signals through a process called mechanotransduction. And that sets off a cascade of events, which ultimately ends up as protein Protein synthesis, uh, which drives hypertrophy. Um, there are other potential factors that are involved. So my my theory on this now, or my opinion, is that we're still a uh, long way from knowing what the ultimate drivers are and, and their role. Um, I think certainly there is evidence to support other factors being involved, but it's not I don't think it's necessarily strong evidence. I think there is some evidence and there's counter evidence against it. So there's metabolic stress and there's, you know, some, a lot of uh, supporting evidence to show that metabolic stress, which is the buildup of metabolites uh, during exercise, may contribute to hypertrophy. There's other evidence suggesting it doesn't. Um, Or if it does, it might be tangential by having a, you know, in a non-direct role, um, there is some evidence that muscle damage is involved. There's other other evidence that it's not. I think certainly, as far as muscle damage is concerned, I think the evidence is pretty clear that if there's too much muscle damage, it's a negative, as has negative effects on hypertrophy because you're going to be unable to train, and if you're not able to exert substantial effort during your training that's going to uh, have negative effects on on your ability to grow so um uh, what I would say is is that we know that without mechanical tension there's no evidence that the other factors pr- promote substantial growth there is some evidence like with metabolic stress um, I'm, there's some evidence that like blood flow restriction training which causes metabolic stress actually can attenuate, uh, atrophy and, to, and even have small effects on uh, improvements in hypertrophy during disuse. So, if you were in a they, they show uh, when people are in a cast that simply uh, tying off the upper portion of the thigh, so a cast on the leg, the upper portion of the thigh using blood flow restriction training uh, can actually um, attenuate uh, atrophy and even uh, slightly promote hypertrophy. Now, what is regulating that? Is it um metabolic stress? This is without any contraction. this is the leg is in a cast and can't move. It's immobilized so um could it be uh um transient to hypoxia and other factors again, we just don't know uh cell swelling. so this is why it's very difficult to to highlight and and to um learn about mechanistic factors because there's many confounding issues that can come about when we're studying mechanisms. So Mm -hmm. the thing is is that um, we we can have theories and the strength of those theories is going to be always predicated on the evidence that we have. And when when you're not able to carry out uh, very good studies, or, or when I say very good, studies that are Designed to really answer the question that you're looking to, you're going to have weaker evidence. You're going to have to start drawing your conclusions from evidence that isn't really, that's somewhat uh, indirect from what you're looking to study.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sorry for uh, mischaracterizing your position as arguing for this model. I guess I did. misunderstand or maybe my understanding has just warped over the years but i also i talked to eric trexler on the podcast a couple of months ago who i think think you know and we spent a good deal of time talking about the the pitfalls and difficulties of extrapolating from mechanistic research to ecological validity so i hear you um quite loudly and clearly but i am surprised because i Thought that the metabolic stress and the muscle damage were far from questioned as drivers of hypertrophy.
0: Yeah, um, they certainly are. And um, again, I uh, I think if you're going to ask me, uh, like, if I have to give an opinion, I think that they do. Contribute, but I think the effects are small, and that and how meaningful is that? I, those are questions that it's really. I don't think we can have answers to, and I to uh, give a tip of my hat. Eric Trexel is a terrific researcher I have a ton of respect for, and yeah, I, I totally concur that uh, trying to extrapolate uh, how that actually then uh, you can use that information in practice becomes even more challenging.
1: Mm-hmm. I think this jumps ahead a little bit since we haven't spoken about some of the applicability of these ideas in actual training. But I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether paying attention to these secondary or or tertiary aspects of training like metabolic stress and muscle damage might be much more important for athletes at certain stages in their training careers where they're trying to eke out all of the little gains they can versus somebody who's totally new to the gym where just touching weights will result in muscle growth?
0: Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I think that uh, for the not only the newbies, but people who are just satisfied, if your goal is not to be a bodybuilder or, or to Optimize your genetic muscular potential, I think a lot of my research is just not really applicable. I think a very basic type of routine will get the majority of people their uh, the results that they're desiring uh with some modifications over time. um but really, where we're when i um when I carry out research, it's about optimization or much I shouldn't say. Much of my research is looking into optimization strategies. And then it's up to, look, once we know what, uh, what optimizes something, it's up to the person, to individual, to decide and to uh, extrapolate how applicable that is for, for them. Hmm. Or a trainer, let's say a practitioner a coach, personal trainer, to, um, to decide for whoever they're working with how important are these things. And and you also have to factor in a person's lifestyle. If a person is limited in time, there's going to be limitations to what their uh, genetic potential or how close they're going to get to optimizing their genetic potential. So you're you're just not going to do it. If you let's say you have two hours a week to train, uh, I, I would say that you're just not going to be stepping on stage for natural... Well, you could step on stage, but you're not going to be a high level bodybuilder if your timing is very limited. So uh, there's just certain uh, basic factors that are going to need to be adhered to, and that's why everyone has to make their own decisions based on on the evidence that we have. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay. Well, why don't we turn now to talk a bit about some of the applications to actual training. And if mechanical tension is the best accepted uh, driver of muscle growth, maybe we should start with how or the variables somebody might work with in their in their training to maximize this. So volume, load, etc.
0: Yeah,. Um... So the first thing that needs to be stated, most people think about mechanical tension is purely lifting really heavy weights. And there's compelling evidence that you can achieve similar whole muscle growth across a very wide spectrum of loading ranges. Uh, Our group has done a lot of work with this, our lab, uh, and many other labs as well. And I I think this is one of the topics that we have real clarity on. There's not Not many topics that I am as confident in as saying that uh, you can achieve hypertrophy anywhere from, you know, one RM up to 35, 40 reps, uh, provided, and here's the caveat, that you train close to failure, that you're pushing yourself, really challenging the muscles on the last few reps. And not necessarily going to failure, but coming relatively close to failure. And, um, that's where so mechanical tension there is how difficult the reps are by the time you're completing your, your sets. Um, there is some, uh, evidence that the, there's a time tension integral. So you're going to need to have a certain amount. The, the muscles need to be exposed to a certain time under tension that does not necessarily have to be though in the same set in, in a given set. Like there's, There was an old theory that you needed to train, that sets needed to be like 40 to 60 seconds for the hypertrophy tension. That is really no evidence of that. The evidence seems to suggest that it's more a function of the time uh, under load across a session or across a week, whatever your time bank is going to be for that. And that's consistent with uh, my dissertation research actually looked at a powerlifting routine versus a bodybuilding routine where the time under tension for the sessions were roughly equated, and they had roughly similar uh, muscle growth, very, very similar muscle growth, even though the time under tension for the powerlifting, so we did powerlifting versus bodybuilding, powerlifting was much shorter. They were under tension during a set for about eight, nine, 10 seconds, whereas the uh, bodybuilding group were under tension for 30 seconds or so, but the powerlifting group did more sets so that it equated the time under tension. and Thus, um, again, from a uh, loading standpoint, training across a wide spectrum of loading ranges is viable. Uh, it's not practical to train very heavy loads uh, with the volume that's going to be needed to make up that time under tension because of the grinding that takes place. So in my dissertation research, the uh, group that did the powerlifting training, the the equated powerlifting training, was showing real signs of overtraining. They were sore, they were tired, fatigued. Uh, By the end, of it was an eight-week program, so it wasn't even an overly long program. Anyway, it just really hit home that this is just not a viable way to train over time. And conversely, training with very light loads to, to failure creates a lot of metabolic disturbance. Um, we carried out a study looking at 10, uh, 10 reps per set versus 30 reps per set. Very similar muscle growth over time, but the group that did the 30 reps per set, roughly half of them puked during the first uh, few sessions. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, there was not pleasant and even they regulated, uh, after a week or so they, that didn't occur, but they just weren't happy casts. It's a, so there's a lot of discomfort with that type of training. So I think the uh, bottom line from that is that training in more moderate repetition range, which had been called the hypertrophy zone, is probably the most efficient way to train. It uh, will reduce discomfort. It will reduce injury potential to some extent. But I do think there is ben- benefits to uh, adding in, in certain various ways, some heavier load training, maybe 20% heavier load training and perhaps 20 25% lighter load training there's some evidence that um there may be a fiber type specific response where heavier load training may target your type 2 muscle fibers and lighter load training may target your type 1 fibers that's uh, again i think the evidence is still somewhat weak on that but we, we don't have compelling evidence to refute it either so i i think it's a working uh, theory at this point, which needs greater support. So a- anyway, bottom line is I think uh, from a loading standpoint, majority of training should be in the moderate rep range and uh, including some, if your goal is to maximize growth, including in some lighter and, and heavier loads.
1: And is this again for athletes of all training ages? Because I mean, so many people are adamant that hypertrophy only comes in in what you call the the moderate rep ranges. So Eight to fifteen rep ranges, and I've, I've very rarely, if ever, heard people say that um, you can experience notable hypertrophy at, at the at one or two reps.
0: Well, that was my view too before I immersed myself in the research. I mean, as mm-hmm. an upcoming student, when I read textbooks that were uh, were talking about this, that's what it said. And by the way, in fairness too, uh, up until you know, maybe 15 years ago, well, actually, when I came in, I, I started doing a lot of this research. There just wasn't a lot of research. I, I will say that uh, I uh, am happy to say that my I think a lot of the research that I've done has spurred a lot more research in these areas on the variables. And we now have a lot more to go upon than uh, when I was just becoming a re- starting out as a researcher in the field. But we still have a, a ways to go um, to really have... Better understandings, particularly on on um, some of the other topics, and even on like like I said, the fiber type specific response. I think there's uh, still more to be learned from that.
1: And sorry if I if I missed this, but hypothetically, if we had two people and we one of them is training with um, singles, the other one is training with uh, fifteen sets of fifteen would we if to expect uh similar hypertrophy from them by the end of like an eight to ten week period would we want them to be getting like the same or relatively similar tonnage so yeah
0: so so singles would be difficult I mean conceivably from a proof of principle standpoint this has never been studied as a single but um it would just be really difficult. The, the grinding, the number of sets that you'd have to do to equate the volume load, right? You'd be, you'd be trashed. I mean, it just right. wouldn't be. It, it might be um, because of the
1: neurological know, load.
0: Yeah, the neurological and just the stress on the joints that's involved. Mm-hmm. You know, you just you'd be trashed. Uh, so both the study that I carried out, we did two to four reps. So they they averaged three reps. So it was you know a little more, um, but. That still it cuts, it cuts by a third. Let's say the average three reps percent cuts by um, two thirds. I'm sorry, the amount of additional sets you'd have to do with singles or almost. Um, so even that was difficult. So while feasible conceptually, you can do that. I'd say you'd really you're really looking more to like three to five reps, as to where the heavier loads would be feasible at least. But even that would be you just can't do that all the time. With the volume that would be required to make up the volume load, um, but but yeah, look, it's you're stressing the muscle, you're creating this mechanotransduction, and uh, if if you were able to get a sufficient time tension integral through through more uh, sets, conceivably you'd uh, be able to equate hypertrophy, and again and vice versa um, with the lighter loads, the. Um, Metabolic disturbance that you're creating is most people just would not like doing that over long periods of time. It's, the people that were in that group were generally not very happy after eight weeks.
1: Briefly, before we move on, could you sketch out what the if there is a, a generally agreed upon mechanism for just what it is that causes or uh, mediates the hyper the hypertrophic response? After somebody is uh, training with mechanical tension in mind,
0: yeah. So the when you're lifting any weights that are challenging, so the um, the mechanical tension will send a signal. And mechanical stress will will be sensed within the muscle. So you have sensors uh, that are located at the muscle membrane, uh, and they are then um, transduced through this mechanotransduction process. They are taken in, they are sensed through these mechanosensors, they're then taken into the cell and converted into mechanical signals, and they go through an enzymatic process. So there's a cascade of enzymes that are um, involved, and each enzyme has various roles to bring the signal from what's called upstream, which is close to the muscle membrane, and down to to the nucleus, where the where, where there's going to be transcription through the DNA. Transcription then is going to, through messenger uh, RNA, is going to send that to the ribosomes. Is this where you're going with this? And the ribosomes then are going to translate the proteins into, uh, into muscle proteins. Hmm.
1: Okay, cool. And then granted that the metabolic stress uh, dimension of hypertrophy is somewhat up in the air. What are or how do you advise people to tweak their training to maximize uh, this impact on hypertrophy?
0: Well, so I, I don't really, I don't really look at it in that context. So to me, I, I think it's almost somewhat backwards that to me we look at what the research shows on different variables and we use the variables. To then make our recommendations, um, I, I do think to some extent, uh, particularly like I said, with more advanced uh, individuals, when you're looking to maximize a response, either athletes, bo- particularly bodybuilders, uh, or just someone who wants to look great on the beach and you know get every last uh, morsel of muscle that they can from their genetics. Uh, that's when you could say, well, eccentric training can create more muscle damage. And if that can be managed properly, then we should add in some eccentric. But we also can look to the research on eccentric training and see what it has. So we're kind of, whether you're putting the chicken before the egg or vice versa, um, I I think a lot of it is just driven through the uh, research that we have on the variables themselves. We can then piece together what the mechanistic roles are in some okay. of these things.
1: Sure. I see.
0: How necessary that is, I'm not sure. Well,
1: then let me ask my question a bit differently. So, I have in mind rest interval length between sets. How do you use that in your programming or advise people to use it in theirs?
0: Yeah. So, again, I think this is an interesting um, topic. So, um, my my former view was that um, shorter rest intervals, and this had always been taught like in the NSCA textbooks, shorter rest intervals were a better driver of hypertrophy. Whereas for strength, you would rest for longer periods. For hypertrophy, like a one minute or so rest was ideal. Mm -hmm. And there were several theories, but primarily because of a post-exercise hormonal spike that can be achieved well. It had subsequently been shown that the um, post-exercise hormonal spikes, which last an hour or two after exercise, really don't seem to show much influence on hypertrophic uh, adaptations. Um, And research that we've carried out and, and some others have shown that somewhat longer rest intervals actually seem to be more beneficial for hypertrophy. So if we were just to look from a mechanistic standpoint, we can make a rationale that you're getting greater metabolic stress. What you have to realize, too, though, is that when you're training with shorter rest intervals, and this, again, is theoretical, but you're, uh, the subsequent sets that you do, you're going to have to either reduce the amount of load to maintain your rep range, or you're not going to be able to do as many reps. So either way, you're compromising the time under tension, um, and thus uh, the volume load comes into play. uh. It's been shown that there's a blunting of hypertrophy when you're doing multiple sets and you're taking short rest intervals. So I will say a couple of things with that, though. There are always some caveats. It seems to have greater negative impacts when you're doing multi-joint exercises because um, multi-joint exercises see a sharper decline in the number of reps that you can do in subsequent sets with short rest intervals. So hypothetically, you can still use fairly short rest intervals, with your single joint movements, um, and particularly your multi-joint free weight movements, need somewhat longer rest intervals, two to three minutes. Hmm. Uh, And again, how strong is the evidence? I'd say it's moderate. Uh, I'm still not completely sold, and I still think there's room to understand more in terms of how we can optimize that response from a rest interval standpoint.
1: Sure. And then another variable that I'm curious about and how the research informs your thinking on it is uh, training frequency.
0: Yeah. uh, Interesting topic as well. Um, The bulk of the research does not seem to show much difference between training a muscle once, twice, or three times or more per week really, on a weekly basis. But that is on a volume equated basis with re- relatively modest volumes. Okay. And it seems that um, there's some evidence. And again, we don't have just hasn't been a lot of studies that have looked at this, but the evidence that we have does seem to suggest that when you start getting above eight to 10 sets in a given session for a muscle group, perhaps a little more, uh, it's probably best to split up the volume over more frequent days, that you might not derive the most uh, beneficial effects from that volume if uh, if you're doing it all in one session versus spreading it out over two or more sessions.
1: There are two last variables that I was particularly curious about uh, with regard to training, and one is the type of muscle action and how that plays a role in hypertrophy.
0: Yeah. So, um, there's there's actually three types of muscle muscle actions. There's uh, eccentric, there's concentric, and there's isometric. Now, in general dynamic training, meaning that you're moving the weights, not holding something, um, the isometric hold usually is not... It's, it's not been well studied, first of all. Uh, so like whether you were holding a weight, let's say at the top, if you squeeze the muscle, uh, that would be the isometric hold portion, really no good research that we have that's looked at that. So I kind of will discount that in the talk or in, in my discussion here. Even though it
1: is, even though it is possibly impactful, there just hasn't been much research on it. Okay.
0: Correct. We just don't know. Okay. Um, and, and I would say too, that that would also impact other. Factors such as the amount of reps you might be able to get at a certain, because we know that if you're not doing an isometric, you'll get a certain number of reps. Conceivably, if you're holding that isometric action and squeezing, that might have you do less reps in that given set. So you'd have to then see how you're going to equate the volume load. That would just cause. So when you're looking at the variables, often when you manipulate one variable, you then it, it causes a. An effect, an influence on another variable that has to be accounted for, and how that's accounted for, will influence your conclusions that you can draw. So, getting back to uh, eccentric, concentric, um, both eccentric and concentric actions. So, concentric is the when you're going against gravity, when you're uh, lifting a weight against gravity, and uh, eccentric is when you're lowering the weight, or you're going with gravity, and and the muscle is lowering the weight trying to resist the gravitational force. But there's good evidence that both concentric and eccentric actions both promote substantial hypertrophy. There's some evidence that eccentric actions might have slightly greater uh, hypertrophic benefits, particularly one of the things that uh, has to be pointed out is that you can lower a weight or the the lengthening portion um, can be much heavier. So you can actually create more mechanical tension per se. Right. Uh, if you're going to use super maximal loads or even the same load, let's say uh, you can go to concentric failure and then you can lower using forced repetitions where you, um, when I say forced, we're using a spotter to help you up with the weight and then lowering the load that you were training, which is called an accentuated eccentric action. Um, How much difference it makes is not really clear. There's also some interesting research showing that eccentric training seems to have greater effects distally on the muscle, so at the lower portion of the muscle, whereas concentric training seems to be more effective at promoting hypertrophy in the mid-portion of the muscle. There's uh, a couple of studies that have shown that. So it could be that you just get greater regional if by combining the actions you're able to get more Whole greater whole muscle growth from a volume standpoint, the muscle volume standpoint.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, bottom line that I would say, as far as that goes, is you should do both. And I think there is some emerging evidence that it might be beneficial to do some accentuated eccentric actions if your goal is to maximize hypertrophy. That adding in some uh, accentuated eccentrics, and there's various ways to go about it. You can Let's say do two up, one down. So like a leg extension, you can lift up with both legs. And then on the lowering phase, lower with, let's say, your right leg on the first rep and your left leg on the second rep, and you repeat. Uh, like I said, you can have a spotter. So you can have manual resistance where a spotter is there. lifts the weight up after you finish. You've got a failure, let's say, and you just lower the weight. You can just do a couple of sets of super maximal eccentrics. So... Uh, various uh, loading strategies that can be employed.
1: Sure, and then the last variable I was curious about was range of motion, particularly because I've always been interested in including partial reps in my workouts, but very rarely implemented them because I wasn't quite sure of their utility.
0: Yeah, so um, I was just involved in a... uh, A meta analysis systematic review on meta analysis carried out by a colleague of mine, Milo Wolf. I'll I'll give him a shout out. (laughs) This was part of his dissertation work. Um, Really interesting topic. So it seems uh, the compelling body of evidence certainly shows that doing full range of motion from a strength standpoint is going to get you uh, strength gains throughout the entire range of motion. So if you're doing partials, your strength gains are going to be specific to the range that you're lifting it. And there's some roughly 15 degrees on either side of that range. You can experience some strength gains, but you won't you won't get as good results strength-wise throughout the range of motion. However, hypertrophy it's an interesting topic. Um, partial lengthened um, repetition. So using in your lengthened, let's say you're doing a biceps curl, where you're starting here and just going up, let's say, partially up, uh, maybe even to, uh, to parallel with the ground, so halfway up, uh, shows greater hypertrophy than doing the shortened range, so the last part of the repetitions, let's say in a bicep scroll from parallel to the finished portion of the movement. This has been shown in the biceps, the triceps, and the, quad- the quadriceps, and the calves, and even the hamstrings to some extent, and utilizing a different model. So um, the lengthened position, there seems to be, and there's some there, there's some rationales for it. The, it's called the length tension relationship. That when muscles are stretched, there's greater passive forces that are uh, involved in the muscles uh, during those types of uh, movement. Uh, and the hypertrophy seems to be uh, great, certainly greater than doing it in the shortened position. And one of the studies I was involved in actually showed somewhat greater hypertrophy, at least at certain portions along the muscle, the quadriceps, compared to a full range. So it does lend itself to say that it might be beneficial, not necessarily to do all partials, but to utilize some lengthened partials uh, in your limb movements. Now, I also do want to say that we do not have evidence, there's been no studies that have been carried out, let's say in the pectorals, the uh, lat- latissimus, dorsi, the rhomboids, the trapezius, so the the muscles of the torso. And there's really no evidence. uh, We've had no research in the gluteus, gluteals. Uh, And a colleague of mine, Brett Contreras, who's one of the world's leading experts in- uh, glutes. (laughs) Uh, On the glutes, correct. Uh, I mean, he has a theory, and I certainly uh, think it's quite interesting that the glutes might have greater effects in the shortened position because of the because of various factors associated with their anatomy. Um, so, th- these are things we just don't know. We can only extrapolate results to the research that we have. People like to overgeneralize and they'll they'll see one study that's done in the quads and they think that we can just generalize it. All right, lengthened the partials are the best way to train. It's just not the way research works.
1: And I, I mentioned earlier that I read the the first edition of Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. And yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, I think that one came out in 2016, and then the, the second edition came out in, in 2021. And correct. So that's a five-year gap. And I believe I read that there was 30% more or 30% new content in he, the huge,
0: second. Yeah, he, huge uh, yeah, additions yeah. and revisions to that book. Yeah yeah the the field is moving very quickly in a lot of the research, um some not so much, you know, certain aspects not as much. I'd I would have liked to have greater um more research on the mechanistic stuff. I mean, we did the, certainly I changed I revised a decent amount of that, but we it's the mechanistic aspects are moving more slowly than a lot of the um variables, manipulation of variables, and other factors uh in the field. So yeah, there was a huge uh, revisions to that. and I think probably in another couple of years, I'm gonna be forced to, uh, I don't necessarily enjoy that. I would prefer if I can wait a little longer because it's a lot of work to write a book, but I want, certainly want to keep it up to date. Uh, mm-hmm. And when you just when a critical mass of research starts to come out and you say, you know what? I think that it really is needed to for people to understand what the new, uh, theories are, then that's when I will make the plunge.
1: Yeah. I wanted to ask what the the more significant changes were and what your current research is that's furthering um, these theories.
0: Yeah. It was a lot on volume uh, and, and the variables, manipulation of variables. Like I mentioned, we just have had an explosion. Uh, so much of the research into the um, Different variables was revised heavily because I was extrapolating on limited research in the first edition, whereas I there's just more clarity. It was more clarity when I wrote the second edition. There, um, the research on um, concurrent training has changed. Yeah, I'm trying to even remember what what was done. It was. It's now been three years since I finished that uh, mm-hmm. the revision. So, you know, your mind starts to wander as far as what you actually did, going back to remember what I did. I also added some, uh, there there were certain suggestions to me about adding in chapters on how muscle is measured. I added a whole chapter on the measurement of muscles uh, and and what goes into that. I mean, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy was something that uh, that I had a lot of additions with. So it was just a lot of stuff. I mm-hmm. can't point out all the you know. I don't recall all the yeah yeah, yeah. This, but
1: What hypotheses are you exploring in your research right now?
0: Yeah, so a lot. We I do want to give a shout out to my students. So uh, my students, I am at Lehman College, and I'm the director of the uh, Human Performance and Fitness Program, the uh, master's degree program in Human Performance and Fitness. And look, I might be biased, but I, I have the greatest uh, students in the world that just, mm. uh, they, without them, I just would not be able to do what I do. And uh, we're just carrying out so much great cutting edge research. Um, I'll give you a few, for instances. Um, we have a paper in review on supervision showing substantially greater um, results on hypertrophy when uh, research is supervised versus unsupervised. Same exact program. Everything else exactly the same, just one group. We took them through the program. The other group, we gave them the program and had them train on the same basic equipment too. So they were doing it in the same gym setting. Um, We have another study. I can't really get too much into this now, but we're looking at uh, a deload. So deload is a very popular topic uh, now where people are doing uh, pre-programmed deloads or factoring them into training. And we're One of my master's students, Max Coleman, give a shout out to him, a terrific student, will be a uh, future superstar in the uh, field. Uh, Just finished data collection on this, and we'll be submitting soon for review. But we looked at a nine-week program. One group did it straight through. The other group at the middle of the program, so they did four weeks of training. They had one week of detraining where they did not do anything. Or When I say anything, they didn't do any lifting. So they could do cardio. They could just do some active recovery, and then they finished up with four weeks of training. We looked at hypertrophy, strength, power, muscle endurance, um, and that, by the way, was um, the theory behind that was generated by research showing that you can resensitize muscle by giving it a break from training. So, is a scorer looking to see whether there is a resensitization of muscle, um, and we have a. Few we're doing uh, next study uh, that we're doing is on um, superset training, just starting in September. Um, I'm sorry that no, that one is starting in uh, in the spring. We have one starting in September that's going to look at whether compound movements versus single joint movements selectively target different muscles. Um, So I I don't want to get too much into some of these because people can steal our ideas, but. uh, But yeah, we have some really cool uh, research in the offing and uh, there's just so much to study and so little time to do it. And um, I'm hoping uh, we have a proposal for a doctoral program at our school that uh, I would hope it would be coming to play within the next year and a half or so. And uh, we get that, we should be able to really further our our insights into the hypertrophic uh, adaptations from resistance training, cardio, et cetera, and nutrition. I also have a big interest in nutritional factors as well.
1: Well, that would be terrific. And Brad, you were right. We we crammed about as much about hypertrophy as I think is possible into an hour on a podcast. So thanks again so much for your time, uh, your expertise. This was really great.
0: My pleasure. Thank you
1: hold on geeslings. before you go please uh like subscribe follow if you haven't already smash all those buttons and also if you haven't followed me on uh twitter at robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as i eat my pint of ice cream on twitch at robinson Earhart on robinson eats please do so